And if you have your Bibles, if you could open them up to Daniel chapter 3, and I want to welcome you again to Cornerstone E-Free Church. And uh, it's exciting what God is doing in this church, through this church, and uh, I'm anticipating some great things in the future as well. There's a lot of trials that we go through. The Bible says that we will experience trials of various kinds. There are lots of different trials, lots of different names can be attached to them. They are all difficult. There's not a trial that's easy. And when those trials come, now listen, Christian brother and sister, I want you to hear me for a minute. When those trials come to our lives, we have got to do better than the world. And we've got to anchor our faith to the names of God, anchor our faith to who God is, His nature and His character that's been revealed in the Word of God. And for some of us, we've got to get going on that pretty quickly. So this is my challenge. This whole summer series has been a challenge to you that we would begin being the people of God whose faith is growing, whose faith can survive these trials, these fiery furnaces that we're going to look at today. If you've got your Bible open to Daniel chapter 3, we're going to see remarkable faith in a terrible trial. Let's look at the severity of the trial. We're going to see four elements, and I'm going to really run through this. So you're going to have to listen as fast as I present. So we're going to look at the severity of their trial, and you look at Daniel chapter 3. Let's look at it together. Verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar. That's all you need to know in verse 1. Because if you know King Nebuchadnezzar, you already have a little shimmer of fear that runs through you. The man destroyed Jerusalem. He was the most powerful ruler in the world at this point in history. He was the king of Babylon. Babylon, the massive city built on the plain of Dura, which spanned both sides of the Euphrates River, had a pontoon bridge that that connected one half of the city to the other. If you want to know where Babylon was, it's 59 miles southwest of modern-day Babylon in Iraq, or not Babylon, um, uh, thank you, in Iraq. The Greek historian Herodotus who lived 130 years after Daniel. He wrote that the city was was square. It was made in a square. Now listen, I want you to hear the dimensions of the city. He writes, he wrote that the walls, each, each side of the square were 14 miles long. Do your math, that would be 56 miles around the city. The same size, if you want a point of comparison, Tucson City, Arizona. 11 times the size of Allentown, Pennsylvania. The city was massive. And even if these figures are disputed, which they are, even if you downgrade these figures to what some archaeologists estimate, it's still massive. And even around the city was this wall. Around the wall was this moat, but the wall was 85 feet thick because it was two walls, one uh, 23 feet, one 25 feet, and then there was a space of rubble even between them. It's reported by Herodotus that the wall was actually 311 feet high. Can you imagine this? Now, you're, you're imagining like you're there, I hope, so that you could get into this Bible story which is triggered by King Nebuchadnezzar, because when you think in Nebuchadnezzar, you got to think Babylon. 
And the walls of these, uh, these walls that go around this city and, uh, and the buildings that made up this massive city, made from Babylon's specialty, bricks. They were a brick-making industry. And the production plant, one of them, was on the plain of Dura, six miles outside Babylon, and it's where Daniel 3, number, verse 1 takes us. Here we go again. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high, 9 feet wide, and set it on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. All right, let's look at this for a little bit. We're looking at the severity of the trial. This was a statue. Don't think a statue that has a face and chest and hips and feet likely doesn't look like that. It's probably a stylized totem pole or a gold-plated obelisk. That's usually what they built. But he built it for a reason. I want you to see this. Babylon was massive, but King Nebuchadnezzar, he controlled vast empires. And when you've got vast empires, you've got a lot of ethnic groups, you've got a lot of nationalities that you've defeated and you've imported into your province. Well, how are you going to unite all of these people? How are you going to unite people who worship this God and people who worship this God and from this ethnicity and this ethnicity. Somehow you've got to unite that. And throughout history, people have tried to do that by creating a one empire religion. Not really that ironic, is it, that the Tower of Babel was built in this same vicinity? That was the first time in human history where they tried to unite the entire world into a religion. And here we've got Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't learn from that. He's trying to do it too. He's trying to bring his whole kingdom into one unified, multi-ethnic, multi-ethnic, multinational religion. And the way he's going to do it, he's going to create a religion. It's a state religion. He's going to rally the people around it. The statue, it's going, it's going to be its symbol. And it's complete. Look at verse 5. It's got a worship band. They've got worship songs. And starting with the government officials, extending to all the citizens, when the band kicks in, when they begin to play, then everybody's got to fall down, bow down, worship the image, or be thrown into a blazing furnace, which so ironically was set up right next to this. And three Hebrew saints were on a collision course with the might of a pagan idolatrous king. That's the severity of the trial. Now let's take a little time out. You going through difficulties? Did you read this last week about the Bandy family who are here tonight? Car started on fire, made it over to the side of the road. Somebody, we don't know who yet, jumped out, helped get the babies and the two young ones out of the back seat save their lives. Listen, is God in control? Well, here's the name we're heading towards, Elion, which is the God most high. God is in control. But we go through trials. Listen, you're either in a storm in life, or you're coming out of a storm in life, or you're going to be heading toward one. That's the options you've got. There's only three. We're all going to suffer. And brother and sister in Christ, listen, when we suffer, we need to suffer and endure it with faith. And how do you get that faith that can endure these trials where you know your God? 
And when you know your God, you're going to see a window into his character. And when you know the character of God and you believe it and you trust it and you place your life into the hands of that God streaming into you is faith that is growing stronger and stronger. And it leads us to the second point, the strength of their faith. We've seen the severity. We're going to see it a little bit more. Now we're going to see the strength of their faith. We get to be introduced to these three Hebrew saints in verse 12. And the ones that are introducing them, go ahead and look at verse 12. Well, it's the jealous astrologers, the supposed wise men of Babylon. They don't like these three men. They're jealous of them. So they come to the king, verse 12. There are certain Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, interestingly, I want you to to notice something here. The king gave a command. He built an obelisk, created a state religion. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they didn't, they didn't lodge their complaints on Facebook. They didn't light up the Twitter sphere with their outrage. They didn't hide their faith, but they hadn't gone public with it either. There's a little bit of wisdom in there, Christian. It's not always the right thing to complain and to mark an outrage. Sometimes it's okay to suffer quietly and let your faith bring out its logical outcome. So they didn't hide their faith, but neither had they gone public with it. They simply just would not violate the second commandment. They would not bow down to an image. Now listen, I want you to hear this. They were intolerant. People don't like that. They were intolerant. Christians ought to be the most intolerant people on the planet. They refused to allow for any other religion, and it infuriated the king. Look what it says, verse 15. In furious rage, he summoned them. He heard, verse 12, what had happened. He summons them. He's got furious rage. He demands right there. He brings these three men before him, and he demands right there on the spot, obey, I want you to worship the image. And he, he puts a little boast, verse 15, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Now, how would you like to be one of these three Hebrew saints? Now, can you get into the visceral rawness of this? I mean, you don't know, and it probably appears at this point that they've got maybe minutes to live. You don't normally violate Nebuchadnezzar's will and survive. You almost never do. And usually it's death instantly, not a court-martial, not a jury with a judge and a process of legal order. It is death by execution on the spot. So here's Nebuchadnezzar. He brings them before him. His face later is contorted in rage, and he demands the band's going to play. And when the band plays in front of everybody and in front of me, I want you to bow down to the image, and I want you to worship it. Because you don't have a God that's going to deliver you from me. Can you imagine being there? Well, let's let's ramp it down a little bit. You either do what I want, your boss says, or you're going to get fired. And what he wants you to do is immoral. Well, that's losing your job. It's not like losing your head. 
but it's still difficult. Or you do what I want you to do, your boyfriend says, or I'm breaking up with you. What he wants is immoral, but you really want him as a boyfriend. Listen, you're going to be brought, like I am, to a crisis of your faith. And when you get there, it's going to emerge how much you know your God, how much confidence you have in your God. Friends, what would you have done if you were there with these three Hebrew saints and faced this crisis? News in Iraq is proving that being killed for our Christian testimony is not a relic of the past anymore. What if you were kneeling before an ISIS terrorist and given the choice to deny Christ or die? What would you do? Your knees are on the pebbly, sandy ground of the Middle East. There is a cold, sharp steel of a sword at the back of your neck, and you are given one choice to recant. What are you going to do? See, this is where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are. Or the time that is coming, friends, and we've got to get ready, and this is in part why we're preaching this series, the time that's coming when you will, you might be given a choice whether to receive the mark of the beast or die. I mean, you've got theologians that span the spectrum, whether the church is going to be here or not. I don't know for sure. I kind of think the church might be. I hope I'm wrong. But what if that time has come where you're going to get the option where if you want to buy bread, you want to work, you want to live, you got to get the mark of the beast, 666. But if you get it, Revelation says you're going to be suffering in torment forever. Can't you hear, like I can, the temptations of the enemy skating into the minds of these young Hebrew men? You know, experts say that these three Hebrew saints were likely in their late teens. Thoughts like these just compromise outwardly, but keep your convictions inwardly. No one's ever going to know. Or there's nothing to gain by resisting. Wouldn't we do more good by living? Or maybe that whispery thought that when you're in Rome, do as the Romans do. Or that thought that says just compromise and you won't lose your jobs and your standard of living and your life. I mean, they could have rationalized that they weren't being asked to renounce God and just give a token nod of respect to what others believe. Be tolerant. It's only for this once, just for a few minutes. It's stupid to throw your life away for ten measly minutes. Or the thought that so quietly is so quietly considered that you hope God doesn't even catch it. You know, I'll just do this and then ask God for forgiveness later. He is a merciful God. So what would you do if your boss asks you and pressures you to blur the lines to get that sale? Or you're singled out by that liberal professor who focuses his anger toward God on you. We see, true faith just doesn't look for loopholes. It simply obeys and it rests on commands, not arguments. So what would the three do? Well, look at verse 16. We're going to find out. Shadrach, Meshach, 
And Abednego answered and said to the king, now listen, look at your Bibles, that way you know I'm saying it right. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Do you remember what I told you that experts believe they're in their late teens? What remarkable faith in their God. They knew their God. Now let me throw down the gauntlet friendly wise. Let me do it in a wonderfully gracious manner. Do you know your God that well? Do you know your God who is sovereign? Do you know what the word sovereign means? It means he has power and mastery over all and the right to do what he wants. See, they declare God is able to save them. Now listen. Whether he will or not is his sovereign right to decide. And they freely give that to God. Which moves us to the third of four points. They knew the power of El Elyon. Now we're to the name of God and look at verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. You ever seen an angry person so angry that their face changes, becomes uglified? Have you ever seen that? Because this is what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. And the expression of his face was changed. See, he had earlier appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel. At Daniel's request, he appointed these three men to positions of honor, positions of power. His face changes where before he was kindly disposed toward them. Now his face changes, and he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. Made it as hot as possible. Listen, they didn't have temperature gauges. This is a euphemism in the Hebrew. This means that they made it, he, he amplified, he had the, the heat turned up as much as it could go. In fact, it, dam- it, it overheated it, damaging the furnace. That's what overheating does to those kilns. So hot was the furnace that the guards who threw them in were incinerated. And you might be thinking like I was, well, what do these furnaces look like? How do they even work? Well, in early excavations of Babylon, by the way, they found a kiln and a furnace that's the size of a city block in Babylon. One building was discovered. In fact, that building, when it was discovered, had a script that read a cuneiform script and it read this this is the place of burning where men who blasphemed the gods of chaldea died by fire it was traditional you see the romans would often kill by crucifixion the jews by stoning but the babylonians by burning and these furnaces tended to be shaped, if you can imagine in your mind, an old-fashioned milk bottle in a, in a kind of a, a shape of a dome with an opening at the top. And that was the opening where the materials that were going to be smelted were thrown into. And there was a smaller opening at the bottom of the furnace where the fuel was put, usually straw, charcoal, wood, and even crude oil. 
And then they had two or more holes in the bottom, and that was for the bellow system. When the natural flue would not heat the furnace to the point that they wanted, they had a bellow system that could get the temperature up where they wanted, and then a large door just above the fire bed to extract the melted materials. It's through that large door just above the fire bed that Nebuchadnezzar starts to look through, through that shimmering heat, when he sees four men, verse 25, he answered, and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. You see, they built an earthen ramp that would get to the top of the furnace and that's where they could throw the materials in. Well, the guards, and look what, he, look what the text says, he chose strong and valiant men, his best guards, and they were killed by the heat. It was so hot. They threw them through the opening. They fell to the bottom of the furnace. And in verse 25, Nebuchadnezzar sees four of them walking around unhurt. See, the Greek translation of the Old Testament writes that the king heard the three young men singing praises. How do you like that for the power of worship? They were unbound. They were free. That's a symbol of the gospel. They're free right in the midst of this terrible trial. They're in the, fi- they're in the fiery furnace. They're in the trial of their lives. Their lives hang in the balance of what Nebuchadnezzar thought his mercy or lack of it. But they knew their lives really are hanging in the balance of El Elyon. All because of the fourth person who looked, Nebuchadnezzar said, like a son of the gods. His name is Jesus Christ. He makes a lot of appearances in the Old Testament. Here he is, never leaving or forsaking his faithful. And by the way, a 1994 TV show titled Mysteries of the Bible suggested that these three Hebrew saints, they survived this furnace. Now listen, get this, this is liberal scholarship at its best by standing in cool spots in the furnace. They weren't in a cool spot. They were in the sovereign grip of the power of God. And Nebuchadnezzar, a a pagan king, he knows it. And look what he says, verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants, and here's our name, of the Most High God, El Elyon, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. Most High God is El Elyon, a name that declares his utter sovereign rule and power over all that there is. Over Nebuchadnezzar, over death, over fire, even over the smell of smoke. Look what it says. They saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And no smell of fire came upon them. It's the power of God. Are you ready? Here's what we're doing. It's really easy to scrub these stories free of impact. It really is. You can be, wow, that's amazing for those three Hebrew saints. But as for me, man, I'm really burning up in this fiery trial. Not only is the smell of smoke clinging to me through complaining, 
through commiserating, through grumbling and, cr- and groaning. That's the smell of smoke. But the singed hair, I don't even want to go to church. The singed clothes, I don't even want to be around believers. That's when you're trying to find the cool spot rather than the sovereign hand of the powerful El Elyon. See, you risk dehumanizing biblical saints. We all risk this. Can you imagine? Now listen, can you imagine they're being carried up this ramp towards this opening? And they're thrown through the opening where they plummet to the bottom. This is not historical fiction. This is the inspired word of God. And they land on the bottom and their ropes of which they were tightly bound fall off. But can you imagine the anxiety as they were being walked up that ramp? The nervousness. Is this going to hurt? How long does it hurt? The dread. If you burned your finger, you know how much it hurts. The struggle. This is what we've got to do, but it's going to cost my life. I'm not even going to be able to get to say goodbye to my loved ones. Because the king summoned us immediately and urgently. This is it. I have no way to say goodbye. God, I give you my life. Can you imagine all of that coursing through your heart? Listen, you may be experiencing that one day. And you've got to know your God. You've got to know who he is and see through these windows, these names that he has revealed to us and know his character and grab hold of it and let it anchor your faith. They knew God could save them, but they also knew God might not save them. Yet he will always be faithful to them. Why? Because they know the most high God He has the right to do what he wishes with his creation. It's what is called sovereignty. Friends, the universe doesn't run itself. And God stepping in occasionally to nudge it or tweak it. That's not how it's run. Earthquakes occur, yes. Ebola virus kills. Crack addicts shoot store clerks. Yet blame cannot be laid at the feet of God. And through them all, despite them all, God's plans are being accomplished. Ready? Let's take a whirlwind tour through biblical sovereignty. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. Now listen, he turns it wherever he will. Listen, you really think President Obama has a free will of rule? God turns his heart, wherever he will. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High the good and bad come? Listen, if you've got good things coming into your life, then give praise to God because he's given it to you. If you've got some hard things coming into your life, well, praise God because he's allowing them to come. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? He decrees it all. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven, that's all the angelic beings, and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? 
listen, the sovereignty of God doesn't negate the responsibilities for our choices. Listen, look at what Acts says. Men of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Who delivered him up? Who is responsible for the crucifixion of Christ? Well, it says his father. But look what it says next. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Listen, there is moral responsibility and it works seamlessly with God's sovereign will. And his sovereignty isn't threatened by accidental or unintentional events in our lives. You know, they set up cities of refuge. Moses did. Joshua carried it out. But cities of refuge were established for any Israelite who accidentally killed another person. Now listen to what Moses said. Anyone who strikes a man and kills him shall surely be put to death. However, now listen, if he does not do it intentionally, accidentally, but God lets it happen. See, even in our freedom of choices, even in our accidents, God's sovereignty comes through. But God lets it happen. He is to flee to a place I will designate. Joseph's brothers, out of jealous hatred, sold them into slavery. Yet Joseph later explained to his brothers, you intended to harm me. That's your moral freedom. But God intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. What peace, what comfort could be ours when you know that El Elyon is our sovereign ruling God who has the right to do what he wants. And when you forfeit that, you strip your soul of confidence. You strip your heart of peace. Kind of like Rabbi Harold Kushner did in his horrible book when bad things happen to good people. A horrible book. He writes this, God wants the righteous to live peaceful, happy lives. But sometimes even he can't bring that about. This is a best-selling book, still is a bestseller. It is too difficult even for God to keep cruelty and chaos from claiming their innocent victims. God has set himself the limit that he will not intervene to take away our freedom, including our freedom to hurt ourselves and others around us. What a limit, limiting God book that is. Listen, I'm here to tell you El Elyon is the most high God. He is utterly sovereign over everything. Our accidental choices, our freedom to choose, they are not threats for God's sovereignty. Even over above them, he is ruling with the right to rule as he wants. Listen to what one English martyr said as he was being burned at the stake. Oh, ye papists, behold, ye look for miracles. Here, now, you may see a miracle, for in this fire I feel no more pain than as if I were in a bed of down, but it is to me as a bed of roses. That's how he died in the flames. How much better to know that our God 
who gave his life for us, who will never leave us alone in our trials, is in absolute control of that trial, even if it were to cost us our very lives. He is El Elyon, God Most High, the only and absolutely sovereign God. You know that, God? If you don't, then every trial that comes your way is going to rock your world. But you can know him because he has revealed himself to you. And when you know him, then you're going to have a witness that will impact people around you. Remember the gospel. As we close this message, remember the gospel. God saved, this is the good news of the gospel. God saved us because we could not save ourselves. And listen, he saved us from a life of, an eternal life of condemnation and hell. And he saved us for a life of joyful service. And he did it one way through his son, not multiple ways. Be intolerant, Christian. There is no more path. There are no more paths to to salvation but through Christ. And he saved us for the fame of his glory. And that's what we're going to look at now. Nebuchadnezzar, verse 28, answered, and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his agent, his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. You see the glory of God? Now listen, let's bring it home. Christian brother and sister, I'm speaking to you because if you're not in Christ, you cannot do this. When you go through these fiery furnaces, when you go up that ramp and you know what's coming and you feel the the trials around you squeezing and putting pressure on your life and you are hurting, you are dreading, you are filled with anxiety. Listen, you got to be better than the world. Don't flee to another God. Don't flee to an idol. Don't flee to a God substitute. The name of the Lord is your high tower. You've got to run into it. And when you run into El Elyon, all of a sudden peace begins to pour and stream into your mind. And as your mind begins to see truth, it brings rest into your heart. And all of a sudden your actions begin to be pleasing to the Lord because you've all of a sudden remembered nothing, nothing can come against me but that which God, my God, who loves me, my Father in heaven, decrees and chooses. And he has the right to choose what he wants for my life. And you will instantly be Psalm 131 like a child weaned from its mother how your soul will be at rest and the people around you will not understand it they will ask you can you tell us how you're doing this and all of a sudden a door Colossians 4 opens for the opportunity of the gospel and you get to speak about your most high God bring them to the saving knowledge 
of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's be the people of God that know our God. El Elyon, our Most High God, sovereign over everything and has the right to rule the way he wants. Let's pray.